All right, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 137, Religious Ambitions, The Rise of Oswald, and others. When we last left off, Oswald, son of Aethelfrith and Acha, defeated and killed Catwathlin of Gwyneth at the Battle of Heavenfield. The defeat was a serious blow for the Northern Welsh Kingdom. And actually, in the praise poem written about Catwathlin, we see the first use of the term which would become the modern name for Wales. Cymru, the land of the Western Cymbrogi, or comrades. I love the fact that the term appears at this point in history. After such an incredible advance, and then suffering such an awful blow, why wouldn't you use a term that would emphasize that sense of communal bonds? It would bind you together, even in sorrow. But it was a terrible defeat, and the line of Ida was once again ruling the north. But where was Cadwathlin's ally, Penda of Mercia? Where did he go? Well, it looks like he was back down in Mercia with his prisoner, Aedfrith, the last son of Edwin. However, with the death of Cadwathlin and the rise of Oswald, the son of Edwin's enemy, Aedfrith had suddenly lost pretty much all of his market value. He wouldn't be useful as a hostage anymore, and as for creating some sort of marital alliance through the line of Edwin, well, that was unlikely to happen because you had Oswald and Oswiu, and they could both trace their lines to the royal houses of Deira as well as Bernicia. So why bother keeping Aedfrith around at all? Well, it looks like Penda wondered the same thing, because soon after Oswald took Northumbria, Aedfrith was killed at the court of Penda. Edwin's line was all but extinguished. All that was left that we know of is Aenflaed, the daughter of Edwin. So for all intents and purposes, the house of Deira, or at least Edwin's house, was gone because there were no male heirs. And with it went the Northumbrian hegemony. Edwin had made incredible strides, but in the end he lost everything. Had he been successful, though, we might have seen the rise of a unified English kingdom in the 7th century. And imagine how that could have changed history. The great heathen army benefited greatly from a fractured England. But if it had arrived to find a single unified kingdom in the Germanic East, would we have seen the rise of Danelaw in the north? Who knows? But with the destruction of Edwin's ambitions, his line, and his legacy, we saw the way open up for other ambitious men in this fractured and violent land. And as is the way with this period of time, religion was a player in these shifts of power. But it would be a mistake to see this as a titanic struggle between the devout followers of opposed religions. And there are a couple reasons for that. First, because despite the importance of religion, Politics seems like it was king when it comes to motivating factors in war. For example, we see pagans and Christians allying to fight against other kingdoms from time to time, and they didn't seem to have any issues with the fact that their allies believe something different. So, like we talked about earlier, religious and ethnic tensions could sometimes be completely set aside for what looks like entirely political reasons. And second... Many of these new followers were not particularly devout, or even if they were, they seem to have often been misguided. The fact is that early Christian converts were often far from exemplary models of Christianity. 
The stance of Pope Gregory to focus on conversion and cut the converts some slack was almost certainly resulting in some rather confused notions of Christianity amongst the population if we can take the recorded views of kings as a bellwether for everyone else. I mean, Raidwald didn't quite grasp the exclusionary notion of Christianity. The three pagan kings of Essex famously wanted to eat the Christian magic bread. They're talking about the Eucharist, even though they had no desire to convert. And there were pagan sites all over the place that were being consecrated as Christian. It would have been a confusing time, made worse by the fact that many of the people, even the Christian converts, probably went months or even years between visits from the clergy, which not only left muddied notions of the religion, but probably, like we spoke about in earlier episodes, left the people with odd notions regarding what was religious and what wasn't thus leading to the odd behavior of some converts picking up fashion choices that looked rather liturgically based. But considering how little they probably knew about their new god, they probably just didn't know what was fashion and what was a core tenet. So yeah, with a lot of these events, politics is what drove it. However, like I said, religion could be a major player in all of this stuff too. And the people were getting whipsawed through major changes where religion was at the center, especially in Northumbria. Only recently, Northumbria had converted to Christianity under Edwin. But now, Edwin was dead, and Northumbria abandoned Christianity. And even when the Christian king Capwathlin was ruling, paganism seems to have been dominant. But now that Oswald was ruling, things were primed for a change. As I mentioned in earlier episodes, Oswald and Oswiu, while they used to be pagan, had converted to Christianity in exile. And now the two brothers worked to bring Northumbria back to Christianity with the help of Irish monks and missionaries. And once their work was completed, they planned to go and convert the weaker kings of the East and West Saxons. Things were changing. So let's take a minute and talk about the impact of this spread of Christianity on the people. And also, where it came from because we're going to start seeing things kick into high gear for the church, and if we don't discuss the way that religion came into the island, it'll be difficult to understand the sharp divisions between methods of practice, between groups of people who all identify themselves as the followers of the same God, but have very different ideas of who that God is and what he expects. So, with Oswald bringing one of the most powerful kingdoms of Britain back to the dominion of the church, it didn't take long before there was a flood of foreign missionaries that came to Britain to convert the remainder of the island. And each group had its own take on Christianity, which shaped the way the locals viewed their new religion. Consequently, you had a whole variety of religious behaviors occurring, even though everyone identified as Christian. For example, the Italian missionaries were heavily influenced by the Roman church, and the Roman church was heavily administrative. They dealt with the bureaucracies, they dealt with the public, and they had a whole variety of other matters that also had to do with directly engaging with the population. Their duties had become so extensive that it became popular, actually, for many men of the cloth to withdraw to monastic communities. It seems like for many of them, that was the best way for them to get away from their duties and focus on more of a pious lifestyle. And if you need examples of that, just look to Pope Gregory. He was one of those monastic members. And so the Italian missionaries were bringing that perspective to the island. And their power base appears to have been in the south. But we're going to see this Roman emphasis on monasteries become quite influential all throughout the island, 
not just in the South. Meanwhile, the Irish missionaries, and remember that they had converted long ago thanks to Patrick. So the Irish were also sending missionaries. However, they had a different take on it. Whereas many of the Romans were interested in a monastic life, the Irish were very interested in peregrinatio. And that's something I mentioned earlier in the show, but I'll forgive you if you don't remember it. But basically, peregrinatio involved taking a lifelong pilgrimage away from your family, your friends, and even your home. And you were taking that pilgrimage to go and preach to the heathens. And in this case, we're seeing the Irish come to preach to the English. And the fact of the matter is that the Irish have been coming to Britain to preach to them for quite a while. St. Columba, who I really should do a members-only episode on, considering that it was he who converted the Picts, and even some English long before St. Augustine even showed up. Well, anyways, he was one of these missionaries in the mid-6th century, and he came over and started converting pagans in Scotland. And actually, the Columban Monastery at Iona was modeled on the architecture in Ireland, which is where Columba was from. And there were monasteries that were established in the area that duplicated that style. And the Columban monks played a major role in the conversion of England. And you'll recall that more than a few noble exiles, for example, Oswald and Oswiu, had fled to the north, to Dalriada, which was Columban territory. So yeah, Columban, with his brand of Christianity, had quite an impact in the north. And consequently, there were kings and missionaries alike who were bringing Columban Christianity into English-held territory. So they were becoming quite influential in the north. And actually, at around this point in our story, which is the 630s, we're also seeing Irish missionaries settling in East Anglia. Hell, Malmesbury, which is in Wiltshire, was named after an Irishman. And there were bishops with Irish names serving some of the early Christian kings. So this wasn't unified, nor was it segregated with the Irish in the north or the Romans in the south. This was all mixed up. And actually, they weren't alone, the Irish and the Romans. Other regions were getting involved as well. For example, the British and the Franks were getting into the mix. Right at around our point in the story, it appears that the Huissa, who were a group in the Midlands, were converting to Christianity and founding churches. And it looks like their conversion was the result of British missionary work. And given how Mercia was quite interested in absorbing the Huissa, it's hard to miss the impact that those British missionaries would have had upon the Midlands. And I wonder if that rankled our pagan Mercian king, Penda, or if he really just didn't care so long as the Huissa submitted to him. And something else that fascinates me is the British nature of the conversion. Don't forget that the British for the longest time had no interest in sharing the religion. And yet here we have British missionaries reaching out to the Mercians. Well, reaching out to the Huissa, who were part of what would later become Mercia. And like I mentioned earlier, the Mercians were the most British out of the so-called Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. So it makes me wonder how Anglo-Saxon this kingdom really was, you know? After all, the entire island was a melting pot, and it wasn't as sharply segregated as early writers might have imagined it. So it just makes this whole story kind of interesting to me. Additionally, while it isn't written about often by Bede and others, as they tend to focus on the great man theory, you can't underestimate the power of the beliefs of the local population. Don't forget that Christianity was originally a religion that found its base amongst women and the poor, and it was already introduced to the island long before the Anglo-Saxons showed up. Now, our histories tend to focus upon the aristocracy, the wealthy men. 
And while Christianity might not have been practiced by the aristocracy, when we look at some of the burials in the area, it looks like the religion was probably still there, and it was probably surviving amongst the original base. And of course, their brand of Christianity was markedly different from the Roman style, as evidenced by Augustine's reaction to the British clergy, as well as his writings, and also some of the burials that we found. Though interestingly, it does look like some of the British Christians shared some similarities with the Irish. And that would make sense, as it was originally British missionaries who converted Ireland. So that's an additional perspective being brought to bear upon Eastern Britain. Now as for the Franks, while they didn't want to convert the English initially, they still played a role. Not just in marriages, like the famous marriage of Queen Bertha to King Ethelbert of Kent, but you also had Frankish traders that were interacting and in some cases settling in major trading centers in Anglo-Saxon territories. And they were bringing their religion with them. And following the conversion, you saw Frankish bishops showing up as well as Frankish missionaries. And interestingly, thanks to an Irish missionary named Columbanus, who is not to be confused with St. Columba, the Franks were heavily influenced by Irish liturgical theories. So while the British, Irish, and Franks were all converting the Anglo-Saxons in their own way, in many ways, their style of Christianity had much more in common with each other than they did with the Roman variety. But the reality is that all of these missions, as well as the great lag between visits from the clergy, created a patchwork of differing religious behaviors amongst the newly converted Christian Anglo-Saxons. And that's before you even get into the difference between methods of worship and understandings based upon class, gender, and generation. Your relationship with your God was heavily dependent on your class, gender, and generation. For example, your understanding of your duties, your place in the world, and the nature of your religion could be wildly different between a first-generation male noble convert and a third-generation female underclass convert. And it went beyond duties and expected behavior. Class could also affect general knowledge of the religion. The upper class people probably had a great deal more attention from the clergy. So they probably knew a little bit more of the ins and outs of the religion. Perhaps they even knew about the Trinity. While the lower classes were probably left to their own devices following baptism. Which could account for why it seems like paganism was tough to eliminate in the rural areas. And then you get into personal perspectives that really transcend class and background. For example, when it comes to the afterlife, you do run into some people who really want to hedge their bets. And that might account for why you find burials like the Prittlewell Prince, which contains burial goods that you'd expect to find in a pagan grave, but it also contains Christian symbols as well. So the point is that, at least in Britain, we're not seeing a unified church. At least not yet. Consequently, quite rapidly in this conversion era, you had a bunch of different religious practices among the lay people, but you also had different communities among the religious classes with different ways of behaving amongst themselves. For example, you had minsters being founded that had a mix of nuns and priests that were run by abbesses. And then you had bishops who were ruling monastic houses of men. You even had priests living at home with wives and children. Like, they had wives and they had children of their own. These were priests. And this situation wasn't just amongst the clergy. There were divisions and diversity that traveled down to the average person as well, with some regions being much more ascetic on their perspective of Christian life than others. 
I mean, there were even regions that had strange concepts like hiring someone to do your penance for you, which has to be one of the worst jobs ever, and also an incredibly cynical approach to the concept of penance. I mean, really, when you think about it, it's pretty appalling. You've done something, you're being punished for it, you're supposed to feel bad about it and make penance, and instead you say something like, hey, Unferth, can you wear this hair shirt for me? I was told by the priest that I'm supposed to wear it because, you know, I'm an adulterer, but I got a feast to attend to, and, you know, it's kind of uncomfortable, and I don't think the ladies are going to like it. So I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a bag of grain, and you wear it, and uh, I'm going to see what Aethelflaed's up to. I'll be back later. Thanks. I mean, come on. You're supposed to feel bad and make amends. You aren't supposed to go and have someone do it for you and then go about your day. So yeah, things changed from region to region. And in some cases, you ended up with weird side effects like that. And a lot of it, my guess is, came from a sense of not entirely knowing what the boundaries of the religion was and having a whole variety of different people coming in with their own viewpoints and no real strict authority, unified point of view. I mean, you did have the Roman church, but the Roman church was a long way away and there just wasn't the manpower to really start reinforcing things, at least not yet. And as I alluded to earlier in this episode, this religious diversity within British Christianity seems to have been amplified by a popular continental religious practice that was also taking root in Britain. And that was the practice of establishing religious communities, like monasteries and abbeys. By the late 7th century, the craze for founding religious communities had become a deeply ingrained part of Britain. Both locals as well as foreign missionaries started founding monasteries and minsters. And these minsters would become the intellectual and economic powerhouses of the time, each with its own traditions, practices, and perspectives on Christianity. And these religious communities came with a number of side effects that the kings probably didn't foresee. For example, they led to major population centers that wouldn't have existed otherwise, such as Monk Wearmouth and Jarrow. And that makes sense. I mean, these monasteries were essentially towns. They were enormous, and they had a significant impact on the lives of the people in the region. Not just for the availability of work, but also you had people nearby who actually knew things like medicine and things. There was a whole host of reasons why you might want to live near a monastery. And in many ways, they became centerpieces for their kingdoms. And part of the reason for that wasn't just the raw economics of having population centers, but it was also because these communities spread new and lost technologies. And it wasn't just medicine. Building techniques, using glass and windows, even teaching the people of Sussex how to catch fish. Seriously, that's something that happened. All manner of new technologies were being brought in. And when you think about it, it makes sense that new ideas would be brought in. And also that people would want to congregate around these communities. And before you go and start knocking Sussex and saying, I can't believe people in Sussex didn't even know how to fish. You have to keep in mind that the Anglo-Saxons were illiterate. So unless lessons were being passed down, they were lost. There must have been a tremendous amount of knowledge that was just lost over time because no one could write anything down. And then these monks arrived. And as we talked about in earlier episodes, the monasteries in many ways had replaced the schools of the High Roman period. And with the arrival of monks came books and manuscripts. And these monks could read them. And on top of that, 
The monks were also a bit more worldly, as traveling to evangelize was something that most orders encouraged. So all kinds of knowledge was coming in, including how to catch fish, apparently. And that was largely thanks to the ability to write and read. And speaking of books, the church helped introduce the concept of bookland, that is, land that was held by charter. Now, this would have been an enormous shift from the prior relationship between the land and the people. Before, you could inhabit the land, but it was ultimately your lord's land, and there was no guarantee that you could continue living there or that it would be granted to your heirs. You had no idea whether or not your son or daughter would have a home. They could be landless and homeless on the whim of a lord. And that was something the religious orders weren't too keen on. They didn't like the idea of going and building a monastery and putting a lot of work into it, and then having some lord come along and nick it and say thank you very much and turf them out. They wanted the land in perpetuity. And that's where the idea of bookland came from. And the thing about bookland is once you start granting it to monasteries, your loyal thanes and other nobles might start to get ideas as well, because they might start to think, hey, that's a really good deal, and I want to make sure that my kids have a home after I'm dead. And so as the concept of bookland became more prevalent, the relationships between the ruling classes began to radically change. And that was entirely the result of these monasteries being built. So this was an incredibly interesting time to be alive. You had social upheaval, room for movement within the social classes despite the increasing level of stratification, religious zeal, shifting boundaries, shifting allegiances, foreign interest bringing in new ideas, and incredible amounts of confusion amongst everyone. And in the middle of it, you had individuals who appeared to have been legitimately devout and focused upon their new religion, like Sigebert of East Anglia, who had left the throne of East Anglia to enter a monastery. And you also had individuals who seemed to have been less interested in religion and more interested in the acquisition of power, like King Penda of Mercia. And you also had people like King Oswald and his missionaries, who didn't seem to be wasting any time spreading their religion and also expanding their power. They were moving fast. And it looks like Kent and East Anglia, who, as you'll remember, were Christian by now, were also zealously supporting conversion. So Christianity was making major gains. The kings of several of the most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms had converted. And Kent was not messing about. And in the following year, 634, Canterbury was recognized as the head of the See of Britannia by, of course, Kent, but also Essex and Wessex. And let's take a second to digest what that's telling us. First, the most obvious point is that the East Saxons and the West Saxons had now converted to Christianity. And that's pretty big news. And just as big is the fact that they were religiously allied with Kent through their submission to the See of Canterbury. Now, we've been talking a lot about Northumbria and the confederacy that was forming up there, and that later broke up there. But the most powerful kingdom in the south was Kent, and they were no slouches. And they were making some pretty serious strides that are emphasized in what they just asserted and what their Saxon allies had just acknowledged. Canterbury was proclaimed as the Sea of Britannia. Not just the South, not just the Anglo-Saxon territories, not just Kent, all of it, the whole island. Religiously, 
Kent was proclaiming that it was in charge of all of Britain. But you'll note that Northumbria and several other kingdoms are not included on that list of people that are accepting Canterbury as the head of the See of Britannia. And I wonder if the reason why Northumbria wasn't on that list is because they were so close to having their own see and were hoping to regain their own archbishopric once things had calmed down. I mean, technically, there was an Archbishop of York. The Pope had sent the pallium, after all, though the investiture really didn't get a chance to take place thanks to that whole Battle of Hatfield chase thing. And Paulinus, who was supposed to be the Archbishop of York, ended up legging it and never became the Archbishop. And I kind of wonder what happened to the pallium. So yeah, Edwin's fight and loss was definitely a bit of a speed bump for Christian power in the north, and the career of Paulinus, not to mention Edwin, who probably rather liked breathing. And to make matters a lot worse, Northumbria's religious ambitions were a bit more awkward thanks to the fact that the almost Archbishop of York, Paulinus, was now living in, you guessed it, Kent. In fact, he was the Bishop of Rochester, and it looks like he had no interest in returning to the North. Though, Really, can you blame him? It seemed like it was pretty awful by the time he left. But the reluctance of almost archbishops aside, maybe Northumbria's reticence to recognize Canterbury was an indication that they were still hoping to have their own dominion. And it wasn't just Northumbria who weren't recognizing Canterbury. Mercia wasn't. Though, honestly, why would they? They're pagan. However, East Anglia was Christian, and they weren't on that list. And I think that's really interesting. And it might reflect the fact that they were really in a tight spot, being kind of piggy in the middle between Northumbria and Kent. So maybe they were just trying to keep their heads down, because every time they seem to have been getting involved in religious politics, it seems to have gone just horrifically badly for them. The point is, though, that things were changing. And unlike a few decades earlier, where Christianity was in a full retreat following the death of Ethelbert, it really doesn't look like anything's going to stop at this time. And to drive the point home, a year later, in 635, St. Aidan established the monastery of Lindisfarne on, let's be honest here, a really inconvenient bit of rock just off the coast. I mean, even in modern times, there have been people who've drowned trying to get there. I'm just saying, Lindisfarne is proof positive that it's possible to have too much beachfront property. But anyway, while Oswald was in the north, converting his newly won kingdom with the aid of missionaries and monks. And while the church was making strides in the south, they weren't the only movers and shakers in our story. And one of them refused to be under either group's control. I'm talking, of course, about King Penda of Mercia. And we'll get to that part of the story next week. Okay, let's cover a couple listener questions. Simon writes, I just listened to episode 135, and I was wondering about the two children of Edwin who died immediately after baptism. It occurred to me that rather than the baptism itself killing them, they might have been baptized in haste, as they were very sick, and baptism would provide them with a measure of salvation. That's an excellent point. An emergency baptism was a real thing, and it's quite possible. The tome from Bede didn't seem to indicate that, though as he offhandedly mentioned that they died while they were still in their baptism clothing, without mentioning any prior illness, emergency, or anything of the sort. 
But you are quite correct that it's certainly a possibility. And frankly, Bede isn't always the most descriptive of writers, so he might have just omitted it in his recounting. So, maybe? And excellent point. Thanks for writing in. Chris writes, I was wondering if Edwin was seen as a tyrant in real life. I mean, the definition of king in the post-Roman world was a strong war leader and lawbringer. By those standards, he probably was a pretty normal king. That's a good point. We don't really have any contemporary account of Edwin, so it's just hard to say. I wonder if he would have been seen as a normal king, though, given the bizarre coalition that formed against him. Also, the fact that Northumbria immediately reverted back to paganism, even with the Christian king Cadwallon there. I mean, that also makes me wonder how normal of a king he was. I agree that he needed to be a strong war leader and a giver of rings and all that good stuff. I mean, he was a king in the Anglo-Saxon era. That's what he has to do. And by running around winning battles and getting loot, he almost certainly would have had a happy group of thanes. And by all accounts, his thanes and warbands were fiercely loyal to him. So in that regard, yeah, he does seem to have been a good king, at least to those in his inner circle. But it's hard to ignore the reaction that he provoked out of other kingdoms. Wessex tried to have him assassinated, and you had a faction of East Anglia kill their king who was allied to him. And you had this crazy alliance of Welsh and Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. And you had his inner circle flee the country as soon as he was dead. I mean, you even seem to have had the people of Northumbria shake him off without much of an afterthought. So would his inner circle have seen him as a tyrant? I'm guessing that you're right that they wouldn't have, and they probably saw him as a good king. But from the behaviors of the other kingdoms, I suspect that not everyone would have agreed. And I wonder if in the end, when he looked at himself, if he thought, wow, I'm looking a bit like Aethelfrith these days. That was just my thought, though, and I really liked the symmetry of the story and wanted to highlight it for you all, so that's kind of why I frontlined it. Anyway, I think he would have been a pretty normal king for some, and probably a bit of a villain for others. But, you know... Who knows? A lot of this is just reading tea leaves. Thanks for writing in. Okay, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash britishhistory. You can check out our iPod app. You just have to go to the iTunes store and look for British History Podcast. You can join us on Twitter. You can join us on Tumblr. There's all kinds of stuff you can do. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and have a poke around. All right. Thanks for listening.